If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we're going to talk to New England Patriots legend and man of many positions on the football field, Troy Brown, about transitioning into a life of coaching your kids. And despite numerous requests from his publicist, we will refuse to talk to him about sports. We are also going to break down a smorgasbord of sports stories, everything from the long-awaited Kevin Durant and LeBron James rap to what the hell is going on in digital media and so much more. We're also going to give you some distractions like we do always. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. No Adam this week. No Joe this week. We do have our seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes, holding down our Brooklyn Bureau. Gareth, what are your 4th of July plans? My dude Todd has a roof deck, and we are going to grill on the roof deck. The view is crazy, and we will be able to see the fireworks. I hope they're on the East River this year. So in New York, basically... What they do is the fireworks are always on a barge, but they rotate every other year. Certain years it's on the Hudson River, so New Jersey gets a better look at them. Every other year it's on the East River between Manhattan and Brooklyn. I don't know which one they're, which side they're on this year, but with that roof deck, I am hoping for the East River. Yeah, dude, that's great and all, but okay, hot dogs or burgers? Oh, burgers. Yeah, 100%. Now, look, I love hot dogs, like, and I love crappy hot dogs, don't get me wrong, but if I'm at a, if I'm at a cookout, I want burgers. There are only three and a half hot dogs worth having in the United States of America. This is my hot take. Let's do it. Number one, in Warren, Ohio, outside Cleveland, the hot dog shoppy, as in S-H-O-P-P-E. P-P-E, yeah. The hot dog shop specializes in chili cheese dogs it's a really thick bean like full bean chili delicious super soft buns that are sweet perfectly grilled kind of industrial style dogs uh, oscar Mayer style number two cincinnati skyline chili i know it's a hot take it's not for everyone but that's because everyone can't be uh great and have a great palate like cincinnatians <laughs> who know that the best the best way to mix to make a hot dog sing is to mix it with chili that has been infused with cinnamon for some reason yeah three the chicago dog with the full pickle slice and tomatoes if you're bringing anything if you're bringing diced tomatoes to that party just don't even start it's got to be a half slice of tomato or like at least a third and four would be anything in a bun that looks like a hot dog bun in wisconsin i know they're not usually dogs they're like brats or other stuff but like i don't want to get letters from wisconsin <laughs> like a lot of badgers in my, <laughs> my social feed fine it counts Grill it, enjoy it, whatever. So you are. So we grew up near Skyline, and we are in total agreement on that. Uh, you have fully adopted the Chicago dog. Yeah, for the most part. I was actually at a restaurant the other day. We took my daughter to a uh, uh, like a like a choo choo train restaurant that specializes yep. in like burgers, dogs, things like that. And I had a choice between a really greasy big burger and a Chicago dog, and I went burger. So I wouldn't say that I'm like a full convert to I love it. The problem with the Chicago dog is that people don't know how to balance the toppings right. So you've got your your it's full a busy, tomato. Busy dog. It's a real busy dog, dude. It's like it's like a it's like a worker dog at the airport leading someone to their plane. I mean, it's a it's it's got a lot going on. I mean, you you you've got you've got like the the slices of tomato. You've got diced onions, usually relish. No, neon green relish like you just sent your friend a text message not on an on an iphone so it comes up like that that bright green text color that stuff oh is it's bizarre. like it's like if you dig if you dig two feet down in like um you know area 51 you're gonna see that shade of green you know like yeah. buried underneath the, the earth it's it's crazy like but you know, I mean, that's just how, that, that that's what you do, you know. And then you get you got a poppy seed bun, you got like the 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 sea salt on top, or uh, celery I might salt. Be getting that wrong, celery salt on top, yeah. Ugh. 
Save me your awful tweets, Chicago. I get it. I work downtown. I get it. I screwed up. I, I like it. I just most people either overload it and the bun gets soggy, uh, and it's just impossible to eat, or they they just kind of or it just, it just they don't really put the care into the presentation and it just kind of loses the luster. Yeah, so uh, they never then, end up looking like that Vienna beef poster that is in every one of those oh, hot dog yeah. shops. But name me name me one place, name me one place in America where the the poster is 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 not as good as the as the food that gets put in front of you. That's a good point because like, you know, going out with kids you end up eating at a lot of diners and so many of those menus are picture based as opposed to text based or they have like a lot of visual reference to them and that just leads to nothing but disappointment every time. Every time. So why I'll does my Belgian one, waffle the not one look place like this? I think holds up is if you get a pair of plain like flapjacks at Denny's and it just has like the ice cream scoop of butter on top. Those things are usually thicker than you than you expect. And like it looks pretty good like the picture. Man, I love those spongy, crappy pancakes, man. I love that. Like McDonald's pancakes are awesome. OK, with that said. We're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in the sports world is fair game. Gareth, I'm going to start. Is that okay? Amen. I love it. The LeBron-Kevin Durant rap, which I can't believe I haven't talked about every week on this show, like it's the uh, the Iran hostage situation on, on Nightline in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> someone from Spider Studios, Northeast Ohio's best recording studio, according to their website, has released a segment of the of the rap. And I'm not going to play it here. You can go online and find it by now. It's a couple weeks old. It does contain Durant. Uh, look, I think it sounds fine. Durant and, and LeBron sound fine. I think they sound great. Uh, better than I was expecting, candidly. And I, I honestly, I, ha- I wanted to focus on this line. It's, it's Durant saying... Every hater all the same. I'm feeling like the world is Skip Bayless and I'm LeBron James. So, you know, hey, huh. funny dig it, Skip. Uh, funny dig it, Skip, uh, for being a hater on LeBron. But, Gareth, let me ask you this. You're a hip-hop aficionado. Is that the first time an athlete in a rap song has ever, like, identified as a fellow athlete in rap song? Huh. I can't think of another time that that's happened. I am sort of stymied by this. I really like we discussed this. I want to. I want this to lead to an old school hammer uh, at the end of this conversation about rap. But no, I can't remember that ever happening. Like, does Jay Z talk a lot about feeling like Tupac? Uh, well. Let me see like, what jumps into my head quickly. Uh, don't see Jack in my lap. Don't want to see Tupac. I mean, there's plenty of other references to rappers, but like being them is a tougher thing. Like putting themselves in their shoes is a little different. I'm sure that's happened, but uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I was actually trying to think of like if another athlete rapper had done it, like. In no, no, no. I, I, I kind of shifted gears there. Also, I mean, it's yeah. an amazing bit of empathy from one NBA superstar to another, kind of admitting, I get it, you're hated more than me, which now that whole script has flipped, and Durant gets far more criticism uh, for having left for the Warriors, right? Yeah, but I, I think that that line is so emblematic. Like, the current version of the NBA is awesome, and anybody who's disagreeing with that is kind of wrong the the level of entertainment you get from the current iteration of the nba is great but what i think has changed it so much from the 80s nba that we grew up with and this line is a perfect example of it is and led by lebron these guys all seem to be friends or at least compatriots off the court you know you've got the whole like chris paul got traded today and everyone's like oh there goes the dream of the banana boat team i'm like man I never like. I don't think Larry Bird or Magic Johnson were dreaming of the Banana Boat team, uh, or if they would did a McDonald's commercial rap together, I don't think that they would have had empathy for each other. 
So it's a new, it's perfectly emblematic of the era we're in, in the NBA. All right. Wide open. Gareth, your turn. So uh, in an interesting bit of sports political theater today, the Chicago Cubs went to the White House after winning the World Series that year. They met with the president. Uh, they brought the World Series trophy and, you know, took the usual photo ops. What was strange about this, this was the second time the Chicago Cubs went to the White House. They went last fall when Barack Obama, a Chicago native, was president. And this week during a trip to uh, play the Nationals in D.C., they went again. Brad. With so much conversation about will they, won't they's with teams visiting the White House, why the hell did the Cubs go out of their way to go a second time to the White House? All right. couple of things here. I think the early visit in October was the one that was more out of the norm. You usually don't go to the White House for your visit a week after you win the championship. You go months after when you swing around D.C., right? That is, that, yes, yes. Yeah. I think they just hustled a trip to the White House because Obama is a Chicagoan. And they knew that either way, regardless of the election, and this was pre-election, they knew either way they were going to need to go to the White House. Right. Uh, or they, 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 they knew either way that they were, this was the last time they could go to Obama in the White House is what I meant to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think there's there's a lot to be read into this. Like, oh, are they trying to give an olive branch out to Trump? Uh, is it because the owner is uh, you know more conservative and is trying to? I, I I think I think this was the more official visit, and the one before was just sort of a a whim. And they probably are sensitive in the wake of the Warriors to feel like they're not skipping Trump, or they didn't do that to bypass Trump. That's my uh. guess. But I believe it was this trip was listed as an unofficial visit, and the last one was listed as the official one. Now, I think this had a lot to do with uh, the fact that the Ricketts family who own the Cubs are major, uh, major GOP donors. And I'm not saying that whether you agree or not. Like, I think, though, that that had a large yeah, part to do rich, with it. Rich sports team owner supports GOP news right, at right. 11. Rich white guy <laughs> votes Republican yeah. is not leading the news. So, um, and Joe Madden, I, I kind of like the way he handled it. He basically said, uh, look, if you want to, he basically said to the team, if you want to come, you can come. If you don't want to come, you don't have to come. It's not an official visit, and we're moving on. So uh, that was that. It's just at a time when visiting the president is such a loaded statement, It was. it's bizarre to see a team seemingly do it twice. So Here's my hot take on this. I don't want to get too derailed, and I don't want to offend anybody, so just hang with me for a second. If, if you have concerns about the nature of our public policy and public discourse my advice to everyone would be to try to hit the mute button on things that have relatively little consequence trump is not going to normalize his conversation his his social media his his media style this is who he has been for his entire uh life in the public eye and i think if we if we want to focus on things like whether we should be uh, taking certain major sweeping changes, making certain sweeping changes to public policy. We're probably going to have to not focus on Trump's typos at night or which sports teams go to the White House. And I'm not, I'm not diminishing. If you don't want to go to the White House for your own political reasons, like it's a free country. I think that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But on virtually the same day that like the Dodd Frank uh, regulations that were put in place to protect average American consumers against uh, overly ambitious and, and shady practices in the financial sector. When that was getting repealed, America was like completely like hitting the panic button over Trump typing convefe or whatever the hell it was. Like, I just think in the, 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 the way we're going to have to deal with four years of nonstop noise is to selectively decide not to make whether, the Warriors go to the 
um, whether the Warriors go to the White House to be the statement about uh, race in society. Like, I just feel like the statement about race in society is like happening <laughs> with much more consequence in other areas. And I, I don't mean to diminish the, the ceremonial aspect of some of these stances people take. I mean, that's, that's great. But it feels like every day is something else that's like that. That's just creating a wall of sound that we can't penetrate to see what's actually happening. I, is this position? Do I seem insensitive? Like I'm no, a thirty-something male who doesn't get it, or am I? I'm just trying to like cut through the bullshit and focus on what's important. No, we, we look. The Warriors' visit to the White House is symbolically important, but it is ultimately bullshit. Donald Trump tweeting Kavifi is total bullshit. Dodd Frank. Glass Steagall, health insurance, those are not bullshit. It's I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's the Simpsons attitude of just don't look. You know, like that's the only way you can defeat the obnoxious old spokespeople. Just don't look, man. Just don't look. All right. Moving on, moving on, moving on. Fox Sports. Moving on. This week. How we consume all this media. Yeah. Brad, right. over to you. Um Fox Sports announced this week that um uh or recently that they're going to strip strip out a lot of their written content and go more toward a, a model of uh video heavy content and and personality driven content comes on the heels of like MTV I think today announced layoffs to their written uh you know the, the written portion of their site they're going to focus heavier up on digital there's an aw- awesome article on awful announcing about um, this whole crazy strategy of being like, we're going to heavy up on our personalities. And like an article that used to be just clickbait, like 11 coaches that could <laughs> 11 coaches that could replace so-and-so at Oregon becomes cowards, 11 coaches. <laughs> like as And the bylines are things like, as told to the person who wrote the story by Colin Coward. What right. is going on? That was the on? most depressing... I just, I, no idea. Yeah, that was the most suppressing part of that. Look, the the Fox article was really interesting and the MTV the way the writers reacted on Twitter I found really interesting. So, how did so they let's react? Take the I Fox didn't see. That, was Amy Nicholson part? Okay, of it? so then let's do the MTV thing first. So, the MTV like this was on the heels of it was so we're taping this on Wednesday, uh June whatever, uh June 28th. So the Fox article hit yesterday, Tuesday, and that was a big deal that they were basically saying that all these people are getting laid off who are writers on Fox's digital side. Then today, midway through the day, I saw it was actually a friend of pod, Spencer Hall from SB Nation, just tweeted out, man, Viacom is so stupid. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, I don't like where this is going. Um... And then a little while later, I saw somebody, it was the, the way it broke was really interesting. I just saw somebody making a joke about like, I went to go home and make dinner, but like my kitchen had switched over or pivoted to digital or pivoted to video. Uh, and so like, it kind of became like a mini meme. And then I saw Molly Lambert t- just tweet, well, I'm unemployed again. And I kind of followed that thread and it was like all the writers sort of saying, I think like before the press release really hit and the news really hit, all the writers were just coming out and saying, I'm laid off. We're gone. We're gone. We're gone. And that happened with the ESPN Um, firings too. It's like, now you just kind of follow them on Twitter to get the news. It wasn't like there was a lot of reporting done. It was like, Oh, well, Mark Stein tweeted about it. So I guess he's, he's on the list now. Yeah. Which is a really depressing trend in just employment and the way that companies treat employees that like, here's the last story you're going to have to cover. It's your own firing. Um, so, but Brian Phillips was the one I wrote, look, a lot of people that I read, Brian Phillips, chief among them, but a few others tweeted something along the line of, look, this sucks, but thanks to MTV and the editor in chief of this project, who was given a bunch of money two years ago and hired a ton of talent and tried to make this and it didn't work, but we took a swing. And I think that as much as I don't like the, I'm a video producer, director, and writer. Like in theory, this is good for me, 
and I have to say, like, I think this is a very stupid business move. Um, but long and short of it, I thought the attitude around, I'm sure there's a ton of fear and uncertainty from those MTV writers. I thought the attitude around, Hey, credit to MTV and this guy, we took a big swing for the fences a couple years in wasn't working. We got to move on to something else. Like I thought that was a very, I don't know, adult way to look at it from the writers involved. Yeah, and like layoffs. That's the MTV side of things. Yeah, so. I mean, layoffs are terrible. I mean, I've been in the newsroom when, you know, they announce them and everyone just sits and holds their breath. I think I'm with you. Mm-hmm. The public nature of it has been weird. And yep. seeing the instant sort of leaks into other kind of subcultures of media that cover this stuff, like Awful Announcing clearly talked to 20 former Fox people who just dished it all. You know, like... That bridge well, that was burned, the other thing. <laughs> not going back. Here's everything. I mean, people had like transcripts of meetings with Jamie Horowitz and like everything he's saying in a meeting six months earlier is like up for instant review. It's fascinating to see how the sausage is made, but it's also a little, it's just a little like you wonder whether you're getting the full context or just like 20 outraged people telling their side and are we seeing the full picture. Well, so that's what I do find really interesting about all this um if the 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 tone and morale seem to run high on the 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 mtv side um boy did it really not in that awful announcing piece um that awful announcing piece it like it seemed that the morale was so low at Fox that every like they described like when they got laid off, every all those writers were like, "Oh, thank God, whoo!" <laughs> you know, like, um, which is a glib way of me saying, like, kind of encapsulating that. But it really sort of spoke to institutional problems. That yes, as you put it, that people weren't afraid to just be like, "Here's a transcript of this meeting," and we're going to completely bury this guy as opposed to, eh, we tried. Thanks for everything. And there you go. So Will Leach just tweeted out. And this is, look, so William Goldman, who wrote Adventures in the Screen Trade, one of the great, great screenwriters of all time. I'm actually going to look this quote up because I don't want to get it wrong because it's just so good. So in his classic book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, He wrote, and I quote as it loads, Brad, at least I put this typing on the pod in context. Uh, Nobody knows anything. Not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for a certainty what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess, and if you're lucky, an educated one. That's it right there for media in general. I think that a lot of these, I understand that more. there's more video being consumed. I also think that Frankly, when I go on the internet, I read 90% of the content I consume from there. Um, I still watch a television, which makes me antiquated, I know. But this does feel like a strange, like, I don't know, this feels like a weird trend. And so the one person I want to call out on this that I really liked what they had to say was uh, Josh Marshall, who found the Talking Points memo. And he sent, he had a tweet storm earlier. And he just, he wrote, and this is kind of running over a few of these. Um, there are parts of the web where there's much more demand for video and where video just makes more sense as a way to convey information. But from my own experience as a publisher, there's some things I can share about this rush to video and away from news you read. By and large, and I believe I agree with this, this is not driven by news consumers, it is being driven by monetization failures in digital publishing. For a myriad of reasons, publishers face steep challenges in supporting quality news via advertising, partly because of oversupply of publications relative to ad dollars, etc., etc. The one place there's a promise of higher or more consistent monetization, though, is in video. Thus, publishers are being driven to pull up stakes and make the trek to video, even though there's very little real demand. I think he is spot on with that, and I think that it's just... This is not being driven by editorial content. It is being driven by advertising dollars. Well, yeah, but also it's being driven by youth. 
and it's what that what that tweet storm does not take into account is yes there is a demand for video content but it's not coming from more skip bayless uh videos being recycled on foxsports.com it's people are going to snapchat to get their content they're going to youtube they were on vine before vine folded up into something else they're they're the the way we consume content is democratizing and broadening so fast that the traditional established institutions are like yeah they're they're talking about video but they're talking about video in yesterday's terms they're not talking about video in you know people now think about snapchat stories as a way to consume content around the events they're trying to follow through the news i mean so it just i i just think traditional publishers are doing their best to keep up but they're not they're not keeping up at the same pace that the consumer is changing and expanding their worldview of what media is. And I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not shitting on that guy. I mean, I think he makes some valid points, but I don't think when you think about like what these media entities want, they want 16 year olds and 16 year olds are not going to read a 6,000 word piece. Like they're just not, and it's not an advertiser's fault on how to monetize this. It's, it's that that's not what young people want and this is always going to be a younger demographic they always want to go younger 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 to to make their uh, market more appealing to advertisers and 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 people are trying to figure out you know gen z and and how they how they're going to operate and how we can monetize that especially a place like mtv (laughs) you know like let's also look at who did this it's not like this was NPR today laid off all their writers to get younger, you know, it's MTV. They tried something. It didn't work. So yeah. And Fox is just, I mean, who knows what they're doing? They have so much invested in like four key talents that like, sure. Just, you know, just double down on it, I guess, because they're not, you know, what are they gonna do? Hire all those people that ESPN laid just laid off to like write about the Texas Longhorns. No, I mean, it's just no one, no one in that, whole realm knows what their long-term strategy is they're just throwing shit against the wall and hoping to get rid their ratings back but they're not losing ratings to each other they're losing ratings to snapchat you're competing with chewbacca mom dude like it's you're competing <laughs> yeah, exactly. with like my friend renee's wedding pictures like it's you you want to get into someone's personal feed and so espn's channel like we talk about traditional media there's no traditional media the way you consume the new york times is not because you get a paper delivered to your house it's because it shows up in your feed because someone recommended it to you and that someone is higher up on your preferences algorithm than another person who recommended you a story from breitbart it's all just it's all just algorithms feeding algorithms and people feeding people and every media outlet is trying to solve that riddle but we spend so much time in the industry. And look, I get it. We're, we're like towing a line talking about sports, but this is about sports culture. This is about sports industry. The So much so much attention is being paid to, will Mike Greenberg's show work? That's going to define ESPN. That is not going to define anything. ESPN could air static during the day, and they would only lose a fraction of their ad dollars. It's all about are they drawing people to their live properties they're paying nine billion dollars like that's what matters the rest of the stuff is just noise and so i think the fox digital stuff was fascinating to me but at the end of the day that's not going to make or break their company what's going to make or break their company is whether the world cup that is spent on delivers the ad revenue they need to and the live audiences they need to and then feed their digital properties for like the extra three months Mm -hmm. they're going to have it like i don't know it just it's fascinating to me. The whole landscape is changing. But it, to close this out, let me let me just shift gears. One last one for you, Gareth. Uh, Mike Myers rebooting the ABC Gong Show. Bro, you need to fucking quit this Tommy Maitland thing. Right. Okay? This, like, this like fake version of old Austin Powers. Gareth, he's got his own Twitter account. It's not even verified. It's not even verified. And he's... He's just talking about, like, cheeky monkey this and cheeky monkey that. Bro, be Mike Myers, be Shrek, or be Austin Powers. You don't need to do this. This is not the new Jiminy Glick. Please stop. I 
disagree. What? Yeah. What? No, I have what? I have a strong take on this, man. Uh, okay, here's my thinking. Here's my thing. So, I didn't know. I I was aware that the Gong Show was being rebooted, and I happened to be at lunch today when you texted that you wanted to talk about this tonight, and you referred to it as the Mike Myers Game Show, and I was like, "What the fuck is that? Like, did he launch some like?" Seinfeld comedian in cars kind of thing. And the guy I was eating lunch with out of nowhere just turns to me and goes, have you seen that Mike Myers is hosting the gong show? Now I had seen promos for the gong show and I saw some like ad for legendary blah, 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 legendary host, whatever his name is. And I just assumed they had gone to Britain and said, well, James Corden works so well for CBS. Let's get the next James Corden. And they found some rando British talent and brought him over. I fell for it completely, but Brett, this is the stuff we're saying that we want to see athletes doing all the time, like show up in unexpected places, be weird, uh, go incognito, etc. Like he's playing a really deep, really meta version. Oh, getting paid millions. Don't get me wrong, but he seems committed to this bit. The fact that it was just leaked out. I mean, it's all media manipulation. I get that, but I'm impressed by it. That they got me. They they hooked me in. So I, I'm. I have no problem with what Mike Myers is doing here. You you're you're telling me. First of all, you were fooled by this. You were fooled by this. I was. I, I saw the promo. I saw the promo during the NBA Finals. I had no idea who it was. I thought it was like like I said. I thought they had the new James Corden. Who's a hundred years old and looks like the same character Mike Myers played in Austin Powers three. I, yeah. I, I... <laughs> All right. Second. And yes, I support if that was, if that was James Harden, I'd be all about that. Okay. James Harden had one of the greatest offensive seasons of all time last year. If he wants to go play a crappy version of old Austin Powers or like the dad from So I Married an Axe Murderer, bro, go for it. That's your side hustle. Mike Myers is just doing a bad impression of Mike Myers doing a bad impression in a better movie. Stop it. (laughs) Just stop it. I cannot handle it. I seriously watched it. I wanted to bomb it. And when I went to the Twitter account, I was like, okay, fine. There's a Twitter account. Maybe it's going to be like legit funny meta no it's just like some abc intern like sharing clips and being like cheeky this and i'm like just stop to me it's like not committed at all it is so very uh corporate boardroom thinking it's clever but not clever i'm not buying it the gong show is way better mike myers stop it all right good good we went deep tonight man i like that (laughs) <laughs> All right, speaking of going deep, we'll be back in a little bit with our distractions. Right now, Gareth's going to break down. Uh, give us a give us a 15-second summation of uh, your interview with New England Patriots great Troy Brown. I'll say this. Normally, when you get to the part about – tell me about the work you do in the community. It's sort of like PR checklist stuff where, okay, I'll agree to talk about this. He's a guy who gets into things with both feet. He's really motivated by the work he is doing with kids right now. And if there's one thing he wants to talk about that isn't sports, this is it. So it was cool to talk to somebody where that is so genuine. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, just a heads up to our listeners. He, he was on a cell phone. It cuts out a little bit here and there. Um, uh, we clean up the audio best we can. Hey, it just happens. We get these athletes uh, on the go. It's how it goes. But uh Stick around, you'll enjoy it, and we'll be back with some distractions after that. Our next guest is Patriots Hall of Famer, three-time Super Bowl champion, Troy Brown. And Troy, um, I have to tell you, when we I first talked to uh, Margaret, your PR rep's a good friend of mine. We talked about having you on the show here. And I said, what's Troy into besides sports? And for the longest time, she's like, well, he's into sports. Like, it's what he does, like, in retirement. You know, he's 
he's he's coaching and things like that. Um, uh, I've done a little bit of everything in sports uh, since I've been done. I, I've actually coached, uh, dealt with uh, my, my kids' teams, uh, basketball, mm-hmm. things outside of football as well. So basketball, uh, I think they played a little bit of baseball, you know, for a year or two here and there. And, and, and they did play football for, for maybe a year. So, but okay. – uh, so, but I, but I've, I've helped out with a lot of that type of stuff. Um, uh, soccer, they got into soccer, so they 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 both still love to play soccer. So, I got involved with that and uh, and traveling around. Not too much coaching with that part of it. And then for myself, uh, I just started working for. I was working for Comcast Sports and mm-hmm. I was working for WE Radio uh, right after I got done uh, playing. So that kept yeah. me around the game of football and and, and helped feed that uh feed the hunger I had for the game. So so it kept me around and it, it kept me busy and uh like I said it kept the appetite for playing. Yeah. Uh what was your favorite sport to coach of all the sports you coached for your kids? I I would say basketball, but then when I was doing that, you know, I you kinda get the feeling sometimes you're overstepping your bounds sometimes because you got other coaches <laughs> that know more about it than you. Right, but they'll also look to you and be like, well, I don't know, maybe you played in the Super Bowl all those times. Yeah, they always look to me to kind of like figure out how to motivate the guys. So not yeah, too yeah. much for play calling, <laughs> you know. So I, I, would, I would always be the guy to come in there prepared. Right, and, right, right. You know, and then think about basketball. I learned that you gotta, you got to you have to approach it different with the guys in and, and basketball than you do in football, you know, because uh-huh. – you just kind of got to let the, let the guys go and let them play the game and not overcoach it in basketball. So, and, and just kind of always be that motivating factor and tell them, you know, you know, take the open side or whatever it is. And because you, you can overcoach it and you can, you, you can have a play that's set up to get to five or six different options, but not even on the pro level would it make it that far. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not exactly Brad Stevens. Yeah, here, you know, so. as, you know, most of and then you talk about a little kid. You talk about you know eighth and ninth graders or whatever it is. They're never going to be able to get to the second and third option, you know, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a play. So you you have a tendency to overcoach it, and then a lot of times you just got to tell your playmakers, you know, once and I didn't understand that. <laughs> so right. So and uh, you know, football, you know, you got to be detail specific. So it's like yep. every, every little thing. You know, and and you got you can have good athletes, but nobody can really take over a game the way you can in basketball. So I figured that out, you know, after about a year of doing the basketball thing. So, but uh, so just uh, so I, I wouldn't say I was, I would say I was over prepared for the basketball stuff, yep. and, and over over coached it, <laughs> you know. So I wouldn't necessarily call myself a, a good coach, a good basketball coach, just because of the. Uh, the input that I wanted to have in the game as opposed to turning it over to the player. So I get you. So you were hitting on something when you were talking about, um, you know, like your interest in sports and, and how that, that sort of manifested itself after your playing days, like after you retired, uh, how did you handle that transition to a life? Yeah, that was, that's a great question because I'd actually thought about that long before I actually retired. You know, and I, I was always the type of person that I always sat back and I observed everything around me. I didn't talk a lot, you know, but I always absorbed everything and you know, observed everything and, and just took it all in, you know. And one of the things that I noticed as a player, especially a younger player, is that how many disgruntled players mm-hmm. that uh, there were when they when they left the team, when they were cut, when they were traded, whatever it may be, whatever the reason was that they weren't on the team anymore. There seemed to be a lot of a lot of anger and animosity there between the player, the organization, or the player and the coach, or whoever it may be. And mm-hmm. I was pretty determined that I wasn't going to be one of those guys. And yeah. the other thing that I noticed is that there seemed to be a lot of guys that I talked to that I may have played a year, two, three, four with. That the majority of them, there was only there was a couple of guys that didn't have a hard time retiring. But for the most part, the majority of the guys that I encountered, you know, that I played with uh, and, and, and had to retire, the guys that were forced to forced to retire, not, not their will to retire, but, you know, they had a hard time. You know, there were some guys that turned to alcohol, guys that, 
you know, had, you know, resentment towards the game or towards the coaches, the organization, and it was everybody else's fault that they weren't playing anymore and they couldn't bear to watch a game or watch their teammates play anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I that that part of it really kind of scared me a lot that, yep. you know, would I be the guy that still felt that way? You know, I know I kind of had control over not hating anybody when I left the team, if I got traded to cut or whatever. But that part of it, that just seemed like those things just were triggered in those guys just by the, the, the loss of not having that sport in their life completely anymore. No, you got to think about it. I, I played football since I've been in the second grade. So, so it was like a, it was like a, 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 a clock inside of me that said, okay, it's, it's July, August, time to go to football practice. Uh, gotta go to school, gotta get out of school, gotta go to football practice, gotta go home, do my homework, gotta get up, do the same thing again the next day. You know, every summer it's the same thing for, you know, three or four months. And, uh, it's so, part of your identity. It's and, how people, and I was 36 when I retired. Right. So you're talking about being seven <laughs> and then being 36, and it's the same thing every year. And then all of a sudden, you know, guys don't have that anymore. Everything, you know, my life was structured around. I was, I was on a schedule. I had to be here. I had to be there. You know, pros college, you had to be there. Classes, pros, it was you had to be workouts. You had to be that place. So everything was on a schedule. And then all of a sudden, you wake up one morning, and it's like, I don't have to be anywhere. Right. And it's like a total shock to a lot of people. It was, to, it was a total shock to me when I woke up the first morning and didn't have to go in. <laughs> you know, so and and you sitting there watching television, and the guys are all reporting to camp, and you know you're watching everybody on TV rolling in, and I could see where guys had a hard time watching that. When the playoffs start, I can feel myself start to change. I get goosebumps, and I get excited, and feel like I need to be out there and playing. But other than that, um, you know, my, my transition was fine, so I, I didn't have a lot of those issues that you know so many of the guys that I saw before me uh, have. With, with the transition, I, I love what you. Ju- I love. I love the insight you just shared about like watching the. So like I'm. I've worked in sports for a long time, and I did live games for a while, and we were just watching the NBA finals, and I critiqued something that ESPN did. Just so my buddy sitting next to me, and he just turns to me and goes, "I bet you're not a lot of fun to watch these games with, huh?" And I was just kind of like, "Nah, man, <laughs> I kind of know too much," and. It's the same thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But then the other thing I want to add to that, too, though, is it's like, yeah, okay, that's 30 years of football. I've been I've been in organized. I've been, you know, had my life planned out for me for those three or four months. And then all of a sudden you're 36, and, and you're done with what you do for a living. And then what do you do from there? Because you're retired from a game that you're considered to be an old man. Right. And – but – and now, like like now, I'm I'm on, I'm on year ten of being retired from the NFL. Yep. So, and I'm, I'm 45, and I'm still, you know, relatively a young man. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 And it's like, what do you do? You you you're retired at 36 from what you love to do, you know. And I don't think people and people ask, how can I be? You got it. Does it does that? Especially people who came because they didn't make a lot of money. They didn't. They didn't. You know. They didn't. You know. Have all the. The, the media outlets that uh, a lot of the guys have now and those types of things to be able to, you know, prosper off the field and do all those things. So it, 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 I, I can see where a lot of the tough times came in for a lot of guys and mm-hmm. people feel like they're, they're forgotten, they're forgotten about or whatever and not cared about, you know, so it's, it's a tough transition, you know, for, for a lot of, uh, for a lot of players that to, to, to be able to, you know, say they, they're retired. And like I said, I, I'm I was an old player at 36. Most guys don't make it that long. Most guys are right. probably retired before they're 30, and mm-hmm. you know having to make that transition into basically a, a normal life. So it's a, it's tough. That's, that's a tough that's time, a, and, and people don't see it, you know. But it, it, it's tough. It's a funny phrase you just used, "normal life." Um, yeah. So look, besides the media stuff, like it seems like you've really jumped into the sort of community work you're doing with both feet. Like, you know, look, you've done enough of these interviews to know, and frankly, I figure our listeners are savvy enough that like they're normally like, this is the part of the interview where we talk about your charity work, but it seems like sincerely 
that this you're a guy who jumps into things with both feet and you are all in this right now the the list of things you're working on and stuff you're doing um is quite long and runs the gamut from uh ymca to an hpv vaccine campaign and things like that so what what drew you into this world to start working uh in you know the in the community that your adopted community of boston basically yeah um I I go back to when I um, when my second year in the NFL I got cut mm-hmm. I got cut from the league I probably had about thirty thousand dollars in the bank I still had a car payment probably one of the biggest mistakes I made to this day was buying a brand new car you mm-hmm. know on a free agent on a on a free agent rookie contract and uh, you know and I got cut and I I went back and I got a job at the local boys and girls club in in, in Huntington West Virginia where I went to school at and I attended Marshall. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, you know, and that was part of, you know, when I first got a, a taste of what it was like to be around kids and, 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 and watching parents coming and going and picking up their kids with those after school programs that I was, you know, having the kids, you know, for that hour, two hours, two and a half hours after school and, and feeding them and taking them out and playing games with them, those types of things. That, that's where I got my first taste of it. So, you know, and then I got here, I saw guys doing a lot of different things. And, you know, I don't have a foundation of my own, but I love to jump on other guys' stuff, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and help them and, and always and try to be a part of their stuff and, and, and make myself available to those things. The Matt Light does his stuff, Joanne Booty does a lot of his stuff, Dion Brand, those guys, and jump mm-hmm. on it and, and help those guys out and, and, and do things with their stuff and then jump in and do stuff now where I'm, I'm having an opportunity to get up into the inner city and, do stuff with the YMC there, you know, which I've done stuff with the YMCA back in West Virginia. But here it's a different beast, it's a different animal. You know, yep. when you talk about uh, inner city kids, so it's you know it's a tough task. You know, you jump in and 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 you try to help, and then you you hear the stories about how the, the you see the, the different families and kids and kids needs that they're trying to make a difference in those kids' lives, even if they don't have somebody, an adult at home that's trying to make a difference in their life. So that's mm-hmm. what that's what makes it important to me because I've always been a believer in that, you know, is that you, you can label kids whatever you want to label them. You know, you can call them bad, you can call them this, you can call them that. But yep. I'm a firm believer if they see something different and they experience something different, they might develop that hunger to pull themselves out of a situation that nobody else is trying to pull them out of. So. So and I see the Y doing the kind of work they're doing, yep. and, and getting involved with local law enforcement that type of stuff, and 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 trying to with all many so many different problems we have. You know, we got you know police shooting minorities, whatever it may be. You know, mm-hmm. try to be a solution to it. You know, and, and and come up with it. You know, hear all sides of the story and where everybody's coming from, and you know, and and and, and getting in and really try to help the most vulnerable, which are the kids. You know. Because like, yeah. they, when they explain it to me, like these kids, they get those kids in there, they feed them, they feed them all through the summer. It, it, it's probably going to be the only meal that they have during the day, you know. I mean, yep. are the best meal. It's like holy smokes, you know. And, and you know, and I grew up, I didn't have a lot, you know, but my mom worked hard, and you know, and, and back when things were more of a community, you know, everybody looked out for each other. And it's not so much that way anymore. So I think a lot of burdens going on to put on placed on on people like the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Clubs, you know, which which they made a great statement to me, like we're not competing with each other. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right now, right, right. We're, help, we're 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 helping each other. Yeah, you know. So and and that was a great statement. So you know, you you would think they would be out there competing for dollars, you know, for their you know for the for, for the work that they do. But you know, they they're all on the same mission, and they all have a uh, a desire to basically get to those inner city kids and show them a better way and give them a chance. And they have programs where they, they basically apprentice programs where they get out and they, they, they get kids uh, together with different work uh, workforces out there and, and, and get them some training and, and introduce them to do different, different types of things other than what they're seeing every day. So uh, that type, those types of programs, why wouldn't you want to be involved with something like that? So, well, then – I mean, well, to answer your question, like you would want to be involved in something like anyone would. Um, 
But you're a guy that you grew up in South Carolina, went to school in West Virginia, and ended up serving this role in Boston. And so, did you could you ever have imagined be like playing this role of community leader and mentor to kids in the inner cities of Boston? You know, and what is it about the city that you've you've stayed with it? No, kids and adults. I mean, I just. I, I fell in love with the city of Boston. I didn't. I didn't want to leave. I stayed here. You know, mm-hmm. uh, had an opportunity to leave a couple of times, and I and I, and I stuck around here. So, yep. and it's kind of a unique city. You know, you look at it from the outside. For me, coming here, it was a big city, a huge city. And then when you've been here long enough, you kind of realize that it's kind of a small city. You know, and, yep. and uh, they have issues like a, a lot of the big cities have. You know, and you know, but I, I don't know. I think it's just culturally there's just so many different things i think boston's just so people some people look at it as a white collar town some people look at it as a blue collar town you know uh there's pockets of all different walks of life here mm-hmm. um the food is great the the, <laughs> the, 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 the the seafood the ocean they have a little bit of everything they have the you know some outdoor stuff to do with the whole northern area but no, I don't know. I, I think I just fell in love here with uh, the people, you know. And yeah. I mean, you can hear a lot of stories about a lot of different places, but I've always been treated uh, treated pretty kindly here. So, and yeah. I think people took a liking to the way I approached the game and the way I approached everything else, and the hard work that I, that I put in, and they and they appreciated it, you know. And I, and I think it's just. Uh, you know, I think I think that just the way people treated me here just made me want to stay here and uh, and make the best of it, man, and then uh, and give back. But I've always done that. I've done it with the Inner City Schools Foundation, you know, with Peter Lynch and guys like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so different, different, all different types of things I've been able to do and then give back here and and and, and associate with people like that, you know, and uh, and and give back. So. Um, but it is. It's, it's right. a small city, and it's a good. It's a great place to be. I don't know if that explained answered your question or not, but no, it did. It did. I, I, I just kind of became attached to the area that has so much to offer. I mean, I can go off any direction and be off doing something fun, constructive, or whatever in in the mountains somewhere. Or, you know, off in Springfield at the big, at the big, big Y, whatever they call it over there, the Big E. So yep. doing just fun stuff like that. So yeah. No, I, I get it. Like, I mean, I grew up in Ohio, but you called me on the 617 area code. So, I mean, I, I ended up in Boston working for the Patriots, actually. And now I live in New York. And the, the thing I miss most about Boston is how quickly you can be somewhere else. Like, you can be downtown, and in 20 minutes, you could be going on a hike. Um, and that ain't happening in New York. Um, so, so, yeah, I understand it. My in-laws live up there. I go back all the time. All right, so then I guess last question. Uh, what do you have coming up that you want us to know about? You got any big events coming up? Uh, I think your book is coming out, a new edition of it. But it'll be, uh, it's just uh, Mike Reese and I just did a, we did a, another quick hit on the, the two recent Super Bowls that they've been able to win, Super Bowl 49, Super Bowl 51. So that'll be a, a new edition to the book. I'm uh, probably two to three pages long. And uh, right. it'll, be come out, it'll be come out in the salt back version. Do you get invited to? Uh, do you get invited to the ring ceremonies? Like, were you at the one a couple weeks ago? No, 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 I didn't. I'm sure if I, I'm sure if I say I like to show up, I'll be there. But you know, they're pretty cool about that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always even back after I first retired, they were trying to catch the. You know, I was like, you know, you just stay out of the way, man, and let those guys develop their own thing. All right, Troy Brown. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, uh, it's been really cool to, you know, just to talk to Margaret and see, you know, your interest and action and energy develop around all the community work you're doing. So everyone follow Troy for that. And uh, thanks again, man. In the sports world, athletes, coaches, media get crushed when they don't stick to sports. We're not buying it. We know the things that distract you. 
are the things that make you whole. So right now we're going to tell you what's been distracting us this past week. Gareth, I'm going to go first. I was really excited for the launch of 30 for 30 podcasts. Uh, Jody Avernon, am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, no, uh, Jody Avergan. I have a story about him when we're done. Okay, yeah, uh, from 538. He does a really nice job with the 538 podcast. And I was excited for some very highly produced. ESPN's been dabbling in highly produced uh, Radio Lab style sports storytelling, and that's exactly what this was. I listened to the first one, Dan and Dave, about the the famous duel in the Reebok commercials in '92 uh, between Dave O'Brien and um, or no, yeah, no, Dan O'Brien and Dave Johnson. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Dave, Dave something. <laughs> blame Reebok. I know Dan. I know Dave. They never men- mentioned their last names. And uh, talks about the fallout. Also talks about the friendship that budded between them and the way that actually uh, both of them found redemption in their own way. Um, it's awesome. I really thought it was good. It was worth the hype. It was being hyped pretty hard on uh, Apple Podcasts and stuff. Much harder than Just Not Sports was, shockingly. What the so hell? I will, I will send Jody and Connor a quick note. And, uh, oh, what's your Jody story? Oh, so Jody Avergan. Okay, so I got two ESPN hammers right here. Number one, because I left that thread hanging from the go. We talked about the night at the Peabody's. Sarah Spain, I want Brad Burke to be on your show as your official athlete rap correspondent. Because, Brad, you go deeper on this stuff than anyone I know ever. And I am a veteran of multiple record geek internet message boards shout out soul strut and waxidermy so that's my first hammer shout out malik seeley r.i.p amen to that shout out dana barros shout out jules hell just listen to the end of the show and the shout outs there so that's number one cedric sabalos please return our emails about your dj hell yeah we are being serious we are not going to make fun of you (laughs) Uh, but number two so jody avergan used to host this event in brooklyn called ask roulette and so what you would do is you would if you it was like a live event you'd go to a bar or a bookstore or something like that you'd put your number you'd you'd get a number and if they drew your number out of the hat you'd go up on stage and you'd be behind this like wall they built and there'd be two people on stage plus Jody and the first person who you couldn't see would ask you a question any question they wanted and you'd have to answer it and then this became it was a live event that he then edited into a podcast. The podcast went away, but whatever. You can still find episodes of it out there. So anyway, I went to one of the last ones before the podcast kind of folded, and he went to join 538. And so I was asked to go on stage, and this woman asked a question, what's the most beautiful place you ever were? And I gave this answer, and it was just basically that when I was in New Zealand with my wife like 10 years ago, we went kayaking in this place, Doubtful Sound. It was named Doubtful Sound because when the the explorers who founded it first went in, they said it was doubtful that they'd get out. That's how remote remote it is, South Island, New Zealand. And we're kayaking. I've never been kayaking before, and I've got big feet, and I, I wasn't comfortable, and my feet and tendons and my Achilles hurt so much, I thought it was like, I was like, everyone who likes kayaking is lying. It's bullshit. This is so painful. And then finally the guide was like, oh, your seat's like way too far up here. And they fixed the seat and we had a blast and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And as we were leaving the sound late at night, uh, as the sun is setting and we're in this boat heading to a van to take a ferry like it was super remote. Amy, my wife, was just looking back and I saw that she was crying and I said, what's wrong? And she goes, this is just such a beautiful place and we'll never be back here. And I said, and as I said, related live on stage at this podcast, I was like, and that's my wife. And we've been married for seven years now. And we have a daughter and she's pregnant with our second child. And that was the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. And Jody just turned to me on stage. He goes, Gareth, I absolutely believe you. And the whole audience cheered. And it was a beautiful moment. And... I have remembered it forever, and I went up to Jody afterward, and I said, hey, man, can I get that audio for my wife? And he never fucking sent it to me, (laughs) 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 which 
I have on- alert. Wah, wah. I have probably slipped on a few video requests I've gotten over the years. And so that audio was my penance for not fulfilling X, Y, or Z email that's come my way. All right. Let's end with some shout outs. Uh, I'll go quick. Let's shout out Troy Brown, uh, his, uh, his PR team for helping us out. Great interview. Uh, really great guy doing cool stuff after, uh, a- after his career, you know, follow him online and in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty.